Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today we are thrilled to be talking with our culture's seminal voice, one of the seminal voices uh, in writing and life, I think. Uh, she's a 10-time New York Times bestselling author, Annie Lamott, and I'm going to try really hard not to fangirl out. But... Same. Uh, Annie is known for her powerfully empathetic and often hilarious work, which tends to focus on subjects that begin with capital letters, alcoholism, motherhood, and Jesus. In her fiction, Annie writes with incredible authenticity and honesty. Honesty that means she's also an amazing teacher of writing. Many writers, including last week's guest, Ed Solomon, say that her book, Bird by Bird, is the best and most important book on writing ever published. Annie is here to talk about her new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, on revival and courage, written to give us hope in a chapter of our history that feels especially dark. But we're also going to pick Annie's brain about writing and creativity. So welcome, Annie. It's such an honor to have you with us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much. So before we get to our interview section, Annie has uh, been game to join us for our part of the podcast that we like to call Adventures in writing uh, today. So, um, Laurie, do you want to go first? I'll go first. Uh, so this week was, uh, again, another week that went by really quickly. Um, I had to look at my calendar before we got started today to remember even what I did this week. Um, on Monday, Meg and I uh, did an interview with the London Screenwriting Festival that was really, really fun. And, uh, and then I did a lot of writing. I broke my pilot apart. I recarded it. I re-outlined it. I'm rewriting it. Um, and um, this is the pilot that we've talked about for a couple of weeks now. (laughs) And every time I dig into it, I think this is it. This is the version I've cracked it. And then I get into the nitty gritty and I realize that I've taken it apart. And then like all the threads sort of float up into the air and away into the ether. And I'm trying to really find, I think what I discovered this week is I'm really trying to find my character, right? It's so easy right now to move her around. So I don't feel like I've quite gotten her, right? Mm. Oh, she's reckless. Oh, she's angry. Oh, she's all these things. And it's, so she's a little, she's a little slippery right now. So I keep just writing and exploring and which is very frustrating because I have this like incredible sense of urgency and I want to be doneness about this project. But I'm trying to take my time and really listen to what she's trying to tell me and not try to put my own needs on her, which, you know, it's very difficult. Um, And uh, today, so I've mentioned before, um, I uh, sold an animated project, an adult animated project. Um, I'll be uh, supervising show running and working with the creator of the show. And today we had our commencement call. So we are officially kicked off. I'm officially in development. Very exciting. Um, And then now we're here with Annie Lamont. So I feel like this week so far has been really great. Um, Yeah, that's my week. Annie, how was your week? Well, I'm just at the stage of a brand new book coming out. And it's always just such a mixed grill of anxiety and self-doubt and hope and fantasy and and, um, 
pain, fear, fear of bad reviews, fear of fear it won't sell. How do I sell books in a pandemic? And um, but what I always do um, is I do something. I do. I always had my writing students have a one-inch picture frame on their desks because a new project is it's like an unassaulted ice flow, you know. And the bad critical voices inside of you say. Um, it's too much. It's too, I've done, or I've already done this, or it's, you know, beating a dead horse, or whatever. But if you have a one-inch picture frame and you commit to just telling one scene, one memory, one thing that's going on, something happened last week privately that was very painful and illuminating, and so I agreed with myself to just write about that. And then on Wednesday, I did something else that's a really important tool for me, is I asked somebody into the mess of that experience, and I told her the story, and I asked her to tell it back to me, and I got it, um, I got it on tape. And so then there's so many things that are about that story that I hadn't even noticed because I was just thinking, you know, how mistreated I was, and what about me, Al Franken, and whatnot, and she had... She like put a little flashlight on in these corners that were really what the the meta story is and uh, like human life and healing and stuff. And um, and so then I got all that down. Then I transcribed that. So then you get a full credit, you know, for a full credit for that. Um, my husband, uh, Neil, has a, um, a he has a book coming out and his site is called uh, what's it called? Shapes of Truth. And the work he does privately with people and in this book is um, about the inner self-critic that he calls the superego. And he just works with people one-on-one -on, -one on the super, on the, on the critic that says what I just described, that beating a dead horse and I don't think you can get people to read one more stupid book on hope and your own personal problems. And it says... Um, that the, the, the jig is up, you know, and, it's, and, and it criticizes me. He does this, I think, really brilliant work on how that voice kept me alive when I was a little girl because it kept me scared and small. It kept me from running out into the street and it kept me from swimming out past my ability to stay afloat. And, but it also kept me um, small and scared, which became kind of my comfort zone. And so at Shapes of Truth... He does this work with me, the same work, on talking to the inner critic. And you're not going to get rid of it. No writer is going to get rid of their inner critic, right? And as my priest Terry says, we don't get over that much anyway. But in his work, he elicits my contact with that inner critic so that it's not just running me. And instead, I can talk with it. And I can, like, we came up with a great um, alternative... Um, employment opportunity for my inner critic instead of keeping me small and scared, which is that we say to it, thank you so much for being a part of this community. I'm wondering if you might be able to take over a job in the study or in the library and be the ethical consultant for the project. And so whenever we needed an ethical consultant, we'd come get you in the library. And then the, the inner critic or the superego is just so excited to have a cool new job. And then so it, it's kind of a trick. And then you can just get down to, you know, writing one more really shitty first draft of whatever most wants you to write it that day. So who's next?
That's awesome. That, well, That's- mine totally dovetails with that. Uh, I handed in pages this week. And so you, I had the elation of like, woo, right? I can actually take a breath. And then immediately the critic came in to start telling me all the things yeah. they were going to say about it and what doesn't work. And, right. you know, it started to gnaw at me. Um, but it's what I really loved in your book. And I've been thinking about this week, uh, Annie, about that critic is um, you had the wonderful reference to the, I believe, the governess of dread. Yeah. And that that dread. And, I, and I'm bad. I'm in a battle right now uh, with uh, my own governess of dread that she not take over in relationship to the response to these pages. Um, so I just thought that could help us also get into the questions a little bit in terms of, um, you know, when you're right now, you're at the other end and you, you and I are at the other end, we've turned in pages, your book is coming out, but often writers can't even start because, you know, you're so honest in your books, uh, especially this one about the worries and the dread and what you referred to as the bad mind. Um, and you're so honest about it. How do you, when you do sit down to write, um, so it's such a beautiful what you just said about ask the, ask the critic to go into the library. Um, is there anything else that you do um, to help with that bad mind? What I love is that you pour it into your work. Um, is there anything else that you do to, to help write in the writing process? Um, you know, I'm so blessed to have a writer husband, Neil Allen, <laughs> because he doesn't, he wouldn't ever poo-poo what I'm going through. You know, the agony and the self-loathing. He wouldn't ever say, oh, for Pete's sake, Annie, this is your 19th book, you know, get over it. He would say, why don't you sit down and, um, and let's, you know, we just, shapes of truth that I'm not kidding. The shape of truth for me is that I, experience the superego or the governess as having been instilled by the parents or the culture or the teachers that they all got me to become a lifelong perfectionist which basically has been the hugest impediment to my freedom of life and of creativity but really I got comfortable having the governess there the voice of doom um, and of um, keeping me scared because it made me I mean, Neil can say this so much better than I can. You can just get a free, you can just get everything he says at his website. He can say it much better than I can. But it is, it became our comfort zone to feel small and afraid when we were little. And so now, like, if I know that there's a review coming out, which I happen to know on Monday, in a place that really matters, I just, all of my mental illness races to the forefront and it starts jabbering. But if I sit down with Neil or if I just look at the, something he's written and I remember that I really choose her, I choose dread because it helps me feel, paradoxically, it, it helps me feel safe mm-hmm. and kind of in control. And so if I can um, prepare for the terrible review, um, then it's not going to be as bad when it happens, right? Well, that's what you get if you grow up in a family with a bad marriage or alcoholism. And most writers I know did not grow up in these families of highly evolved, um, spiritual and psychologically fit parents, you know, and you grow up scared or weird or, or dancing as fast as you can and you become a decent writer and you get more and more and more attention for it. And you just, it, it's so addictive. And, um, but if I remember that 
the healing from that is an inside job because I hired the governess. Then I can help her find alternate employment and then I can do what I know is going to help me get free and unclenched and more playful in my work, which is to do it badly. And you know, if I write a shitty first draft, I'm scared really a lot, almost probably the whole time. And then you have a first draft. God, when you have a first draft of something, it's like God has reached out and touched you, right? Out of the what E.E. Cummings called the no of all nothingness, that blank paper. And you now you have a shitty first draft. And now you can go through and you can take out the lies. You can take off the stuff where you're trying too hard. You can take out the stuff that is at five pages when really a page and a half would be ideal. And you, ha you can work with it. It's like clay that you've pulled from the river that's on a table and, and it's wet and it's malleable and you can work with it and start to shape it. But the shitty first draft is pulling it all out of the river and plopping it down on a table outside. I, I love what you said. Well, two things. One about when you're writing and you put the little frame out and you like have an assignment for the day. And then what you just said uh, about you're taking out the lies from your work. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, like, in your daily routine, and this is a question from a listener, too, like, what's your daily routine from Shelly? But more than that, like, when you're working and you come upon one of those lies, how do you recognize it? Like, what happens that you say, like, I need to fix that or take it out? Well, a fiction or a screenplay is a per way that we tell the truth, but with lots of lies and fantasy and fabrication. But... Um, in all of my nonfiction work, um, especially, I can just see that I'm touting something or including something because it just sounds so cool or it'll make people think I'm more erudite than I am or more spiritually evolved. And it's not really true. And what's underneath it, what's underneath it deep inside is probably a lot more interesting anyway. It just might be scary for me to reveal it. Well, you also, I don't write, I, you know, I, I share with my uh, readers stuff that's about three or four concentric circles out from my center. I would tell my three best girlfriends and Neil the deepest truth. And my son, I would tell, and a, one or two friends that are men. And then two concentric circles out. I would tell people in my recovery community. I would share that very openly. And then three concentric circles out. I write from just the truest, most universal stuff I know. But by the time I share it with an audience, I know it's universal. I know that you're not going to be shocked when I tell you that I obsess about, you know, my jiggly thighs or whatever. And um, you're just going to laugh and then we're going to really have some kind of connection. It'll be really fun and it'll be touching because we have a connection. So um, the lies for me are usually trying to get people to think I'm different than, better than, smarter than, or more humble <laughs> than. Um, and I take that stuff out. But I tell people, my writing students, when I had them, um, or all through Bird by Bird, um, you know, um, get it all down on paper. Just spew and get it all down. And get the, don't let the fear that you're telling half truths or or bullshit stop you because there's all of the voices, not just the critical voice, not just the governess or 
the superego, um, it's all a part, uh, it's a weave, you know, so you just get it all down. You, and all the beautiful stuff, the messy stuff, the stuff you're you're going to take out later, and and um and then you can make a decision later. But there's so many things that want you to not write and to not tell your stories and not share your vision, not share your truth. That the worst thing you can do is to start to edit yourself with the first draft. But I always told everyone, do one whole draft. Go take out the lies and the bullshit. I also take out all the stuff that I that's very funny, but that I included so that people won't think that I have a um, you know really dark, shadowy side that's capable of deep depression or despair. And I used to oh god, um, the first review I ever got, which was 45, 40 some years ago for my first novel, Hard Laughter. Um, I got it in the mail because that's how everything happened back then. It was a Kirkus review, and I just got a terrible Kirkus review for Dust Night Dawn, but then I got like five great reviews from much more important places, but Kirkus review is just, I feel like they're after me. But the first review I got, I was 26, and they said something like, whatever meager charms this book possesses are marred by her show-offy overkill and probably no sentence in anything that's ever been written about me has had a greater effect on me it was the end of the world luckily I was still drinking at the time but um I, I go through and I take out all the show-offy overkill how do you recognize the show-offy overkill I mean just to follow up like I I I get what you're saying about the lies and that, like, but is there something that happens in your body or is there some trigger that happens? Cause you know, as you were saying, like the anxiety and the mental illness and all that stuff, like always crops up. It can get very cloudy when you're trying to edit your work. So how do you yeah. see through those clouds? Yeah. The best thing for me is to give it to one of my readers or to Neil and to have them mark it up. And you have to have, cause it's hard to find your, it's like not, you know, it's like anything with your own self. So when you're a kid and you're growing and you don't really think that you are at all and they can show you on the wall that you have. But um, it's really hard for me to know if I've gone over the edge or if I haven't leaned on something enough. And so I give it to a, a editor, a friend who I trust absolutely. And I just say, mark it up. And if stuff is, if you think, I mean, I might think something's hilarious and my friend Janine might say, you know what, it's going to be read wrong. It's just going to be read wrong. Or she'll say, I love this, but then you stop right before the payoff. And the payoff is that it happens, and then there you were, and the door of the train opened, or whatever. And so, and, and usually when you give somebody a draft, you're exhausted with the material. You're sick of yourself in your own voice, and you don't want someone to say, you need to dig a little bit deeper right? But totally. God, are you grateful that they have and right. that you've done it and you've made everything so much better? And then if people mark something for a possible cut, PC, I, I'm so offended. My feelings are so hurt that they're such assholes that they don't realize <laughs> how magnificent that material is. And then I'm very grateful that they said possible cut. Or, you know, I'm, a old, I'm almost 67 now and I, you know, my first five books were written on typewriters with, you know, whiteout and correcto tape. And there was a process called putting it through the typewriter. And you took a draft and you put it through the typewriter and you retyped it. You didn't cut and paste it. You couldn't send a cut 
and you could cut and paste it for your own um, so that you were going to type it up differently, but you were going to be retyping that second draft. You weren't going to be doing find and replace, you know, or cut and paste or anything. And so, um, and I think that process is so profound. If something's marked, say a passage of, you know, several hundred words is marked as a possible cut, maybe they think it's a cut, but I'm not giving up on it yet. And I think I can do it better. And I think, thank you for pointing it out. But by the same token, let me try it from his point of view instead. Let me try it as an afterthought. Let me try it as a flashback. I got it. I understand. And you put it through the typer. You retype it. So That's great. Yeah, that's amazing. We talk a lot to our emerging writers about you know, after your first, what we call a puke draft, which you just puke it out. Yeah. Uh, it, you don't take that puke draft and then start writing in it that you need to open a brand new document right. and that it, it fries their brain. That what do you mean? Start with an empty document. I wrote all this and we're like, no, that you have to rewrite it. So it's very, I love the typewriter analogy and that's what writers used to do. Um, yeah. You know, something you said in the book that I really loved was everything helps you learn who you are and that's why you are here. And you also say, I don't want life to be about finding who I am. <laughs> doesn't work for me at all. Like those two opposing sides. And Lorian sometimes on our show, because it's about the life of a writer or, or of an artist and that we're always trying to evolve somehow in our writing, know ourselves more deeply. You know, she always says, you know, can I be done evolving now I'm tired. Uh, as a writer? <laughs> She's tired. Yeah. I'm tired. Do, I, do I have to keep doing this? Um, you know, for you, do you ever get fatigued of the writer's path? You know, how do you keep going? How do you keep the curiosity, that beautiful uh, idea you have of the soul, that so much of your soul is about curiosity? Uh, how do you keep that going? I got to say, I met Neil when I was 62, I got, we got married three days after I got social security, but it was through Neil in that work. I'm not kidding that I got this curious, this active curiosity back this, it was like the work he does and the work he does with me, but I see him doing with, with clients. It was like, it was like I was getting spritzed by a plant mister. He has this great line. He says, Every single thing you need to know about life and God, you can discover in a 10 minute walk through the neighborhood, you know, because you're going to see someone who lost their wife last week. You're going to see a few of us who've gotten two vaccinations and are overly happy. You're going to see people whose dog is, has face has gotten white and is limping. You're going to see little kids that are four that you thought were coming up on their one year birthday. You're going to see it all. You're going to see the glory of God in the, in the buds and in the, daffodils with their you know these funny little sight gag of flowers that are bursting now in the spring with their big schnozzes and their bright clown colors and you're going to see it all and that um that changed me at a molecular level to get involved with somebody whose work is about turn it's like i write in bird by bird about k-fucked radio and how to out of one and this is true for all writers out of one speaker that you're really onto something this is so cool this is going to be big this is going to be seriously big and then out of the last speaker the second speaker that you know you're a total fraud and that it's dog do and that whatever the jig is up always and so I went from um, thinking I knew so much uh, and having the inner critic. Um, out of one speaker with Neil coming into this um, 
fascination with the voices that I hired to keep me small and safe and that um, and those voices that could be turned into uh, ethical consultations or um, you know research in the library but also out of that left-hand speaker this renewed curiosity Neil has this thing I want to get it tattooed on his arm he it, it's like a key to the kingdom and it's saying I don't know you know, which usually in your 60s, you're not saying, I don't know, you know, because you're no, he's a horrible know-it-all, I'll say. But you think anyway that you know, you know how to do it. You know, you kind of know what life is about, that there are cycles, that some days are just too long, that the pendulum will always swing back, that we believe in, in our best friends and we believe in science and that seems to get us through most crises. And, um, but to say, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen with the new book during a pandemic. I feel kind of panicky. I don't know what I'm working on right now, but as I said, I got two days worth of work written. I captured stuff, I transcribed, I asked the person for insight, I scribbled down everything that I could think of that happened in a painful but possibly transformational experience of discomfort. And, um, and so I just now, I've um, taken on this, his habit of saying, I don't know. How does this end? How would I know? How do you know how your screenplay or your book ends until you're nearly there? How do you, I don't know. That's so, beautiful. Um, That's so beautiful because it holds within it both the thrill and the excitement of not knowing and the terror of not knowing. Yeah, and, and that yeah. you're just talking about leaning towards the excitement. A friend said to me once, well, you know, your nervous system doesn't know the difference between fear and excitement. So you might yeah. be afraid, but that might be the voice in your head telling you you're afraid because it's used to that. It might be excited. So it's so beautiful that I don't know is something to embrace, not run away from. That's amazing. That's amazing. And the best thing besides my dad's thing about bird by bird, the best thing I ever heard about writing was E.L. Doctorow saying that writing was like driving at night with the headlights on. You could only see a little ways in front of you, but you could make the whole journey that way. You know, and that's the ultimate, I don't know. I can see 10 feet in front of me, but I'm driving a thousand miles and the critical voice says how are you going to get you can see 10 feet in front of you what good is that going to do well every single thing you do is like driving at night with the headlights on you can only see a little ways in front of you but you can make the whole journey that way um, lovely which will probably help me at night too when i'm driving my headlights on um i i wonder um Sorry, I had the question in my head and That's I've okay. totally forgotten it because <laughs> I was just so interested in what you were talking about. Um, when a lot of writers start out, I mean, I know when I did, there was a lot of shoulds. I should do it this way. There are rules, right? We're all, we were all looking for the way it's done. Um, I wonder how your process has evolved. Did you start with rules and shoulds? And then you've, I know you talk about curiosity and getting to the, I don't know, but how how has that process been for you? Like, did you start out outlining and now you don't? So it was sort of what, can you talk about some of that? I, um, I don't outline and I, I, I'm, I've moved into a very small little funny office that I love on our property. But I usually have big sheets of um, grit of uh, like poster sized graph paper because everybody's handwriting looks better on graph paper. And like, um, with every book, especially novels, so I, I'll, I'll put circles to kind of represent lily pads that I'm, you start, you, you put your, um, 
you bring your rider into the beginning of your story and that's the first lily pad in the pond you they get into the pond with you and then maybe there's six major lily pads along the way until you come to the end of the pond and um and i i write in pencil i do believe in pencil here's the audio visual aid um, and I, I'll make these six circles where we begin and maybe not where we end because I don't know yet, but some, but maybe what the, what I see as having been the main character's transformation, what the crisis was after which everything was different, what we call classically the climax. So that might be the fifth lily pad. And I might begin the piece, the novel with this idea that this seemingly catastrophic event or loss or tragedy or meeting up is the end of the world where actually it's the springboard to new life. I might start to pencil that in in the fifth lily pad. And then I realized that I really, really think that it's important that we are in uh, a different country where where the, uh, just off the top of my head, where they're, that we're, in, we're suddenly in quarantine and we can't find our passport and we can't get home. I really want to do that. What is it to know nothing about what is true and where, how to get home and to not even know if home is safe to get to anymore. So I'd, I'd pencil that in in small writing in the second lily pad. And so I, I'm, I'm very disorganized and kind of hod, hodgepodgey, but to have graph paper, two big sheets of graph paper on my walls um, is about as organized I get as I get. That's great. <laughs> As you can see, my office, I before we got on the call, I had all these big yellow sticky notes all over yeah. my wall here. And I yeah. thought, oh, that looks so messy. And I like pulled them all down. Uh -huh. But yeah. it's very similar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everywhere. Close yes. Yeah. Close I know. And they walk away on your feet. It's very dangerous. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you had the beautiful image in the book about the Nautilus shell and that oh, yeah. there there is this beautiful space inside oh, yeah, yeah. all of us that's a relief from anxiety and self-consciousness yeah. um let me see yeah uh it's called the snail hymn hmm. uh and and the and uh let's hold the book up it's so incredibly beautiful and i want to show you something this is so great i got my nails done to match the book <gasps> oh spectacular. spectacular what a fun way to celebrate right <laughs> i love that Oh, okay, I remember this chapter. It's called Snail Hymn. And all I had, it's 3,000 words. It was my favorite length. Um, and it all starts off as 4,500 words. That's great to know that every piece that I've written that's 3,000 words, which is most pieces I've written, began as 45. And I went through and I cut out the lies. I cut off the, cut out the bullshit. I did what Jessica Midford said. You know, you have to kill your little darlings. I took out the show off the overkill. I showed it to two or three people. I took their suggestions mostly and whatnot. And I got it down to 3,000 words. But with this one piece in um, Death's Night Dawn, I discovered um, that in a Nautilus shell, which I had a fossilized Nautilus shell. You can get them on eBay for like $2.99. They're split down the middle and you can see... All of life mathematically is reducible to a nautilus shell, whether it's the um, a sunflower, the, the, the seed head of a sunflower, it's in a spiral. It starts off in the middle, in the center with one cell and it, it, it spirals around that 
um, so that the center will be contained but not squished. And then it ends in a spiral at the end of the um, seed bed where 2,000 nautilus seeds would be. And it's held together because it's attached to the entire thing by the spiral. And, you know, the, the galaxy is in a um, uh, spiral. And uh, like, it's such an interesting mathematical thing, which I don't really understand, except that it's, you know, the, the most basic theory in mathematics is the... Uh, and so anyway, all I had, and, and then, so I started to look up the Nautilus shell, and um, uh, just because I thought there might be a lesson in it for my Sunday school kids, which is why how I get almost anything written, uh, is that I think of great ways to make my Sunday school kids be very excited about the Nautilus shell. But, um, so I just want to read you what I discovered. Um, each of the nautilus shell chambers, starting at the very inside of the spiral, is incrementally bigger than the one before, until there is the outermost space where the mollusk lives. It's a creature's living quarters. It's its crib. The chambers hold gas extracted during respiration for buoyancy and propulsion. The nautilus, protected in the final um, chamber is both inside and yet connected to the outside, to water and to food. I mean, this is trippy stuff. Even my atheist friends admit, too, that this is a good metaphor for this uh, safe space that's in each of us where there is relief from anxiety and self-consciousness and where there is room to breathe, to settle in, settle down, mull things over without anyone's hot breath on our neck. And so the Nautilus is the, the Fibonacci spiral is the most core theorem in, um, in mathematics. And you see it in pine cones and you see it in, you see it in the shells. And so I just have this incredible curiosity. This is a, a snail. All that stuff I read you, that it's got a safe space. It's got a crib that it lives in. It is propelled, it can get to the surface in the blink of an eye by using the discharge from its oxygen intake as bubbles. It's like seltzer water. It's got a salt, one of those things you see on TV that you can make uh, water turn into uh, mineral water. And, uh, and I started to think about that. And then I started to ask myself the big question, where is the safe space deep inside of me? Where is that space where people's hot breath is not breathing down my neck? Where I'm not thinking if this is going to be saleable? Where I'm not thinking about how other people are going to feel, but if they're going to like this as much as, you know, where is that safe space? How do I get there so that I can write from it and more importantly, live from it? Well, so that whole essay is about how we do that and how to um, convey this to my children that I teach and my grandson. Um, how we find it. How do we find the place that is not going to fly away and that cannot be squished? Like the bead head, the seed head of a sunflower seed. How do, where is that? So, you know, it takes 3,000 words, but um, so that's how it all starts is with this idea. And I know it's true for all of you, all three of you, that you have one image. That's why I love the, the thing I used to do with the one inch picture frames. You have this one 
picture and you can't shake it. Like we all have pictures all day, every day, coming in, coming in, images, metaphors, all of it. And one of them just keeps bugging you, you know, and you think, oh, I know nothing about math. I know nothing about biology, but this thing just keeps tugging you on the shoulder. If you're open for business as a writer and 80% and of being open for business is that you say, I'm writing. I'm a writer, I'm writing. And then you're in a place of receptivity and you start seeing other stuff that you want to scribble down and take, you know, you just want to get it down on your phone or I write, I have very fair hands and so I write on my hands and, you know, um, and, and that thing just keeps pestering you and bugging you to examine it more closely. And so that means that you read up about it and it means that you jam with a few friends about it. Have you ever noticed this about a pine cone? Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't. And there's something, there's stuff about pine cones I could write whole books about, you know. But, you know, that when a pine cone bursts in a forest fire, it's how it spreads its seed. You know, one kernel of the pine cone grows a multitude of baby pine cones, you know. I mean, so it's like if you're a writer, you're blessed by being hounded by this stuff. Like, what does this mean? What is it all about? How can I convey it in a way where I'm going to be able to trick people into turning the page <laughs> and not not putting hitting the pause button on my movie? How can I get people? Well, why is it so interesting to me? Because it's, it's about the human heart, the Fibonacci um, spiral and the equation and the nautilus with its little seltzer machine going and its crib is really about the human heart right it all is there's really one story the story is here we are what do we make of it we're all gonna die how do we live in the face of that and what really blew our minds along the way right and so that's how a story comes into being and it was 4500 words and um and now it's under three thousand, you know. Amazing, so so beautiful. I'm sorry, I just, my answers are so long winded. I love, I love it. it. Oh my god, we're just sitting we here wrapped. It. We're wrapped. Yes. Um, yes. Jeff, I thought you should ask one of your questions. Yeah, you know, um, Annie, I just want to say I said it at the top, but you're a huge reason I am a writer, and even me being on this show and working with these two, I'm I'm what we call an emerging writer. It's a term that we use on our show. We think saying things like young writer is kind of condescending. So Meg and Lorian have coined the term emerging writer, which I think is really beautiful. But one of the things I still face is, um, you know, the feeling of the voices of people we love who might not want to give us permission to write about them. And one quote that you have that you're kind of known for is, you know, if people wanted to be I, I have the exact quote written down. If people down. wanted you to write more nice, more warmly about them, they should have behaved better. Yes, which I love. <laughs> but I feel like I'm still having trouble giving myself permission to tell the truth sometimes because I hear my mom right here telling me not to write this down or my cousins or siblings or, you know, my old youth pastor or something like that. And I'm, I'm wondering, Annie, like, how do we actually do the work to get past that as we're writing? Because you know, you foreground the truth is such an important part of what we're aiming for. But sometimes telling the truth might hurt the people we love. Uh huh. Well, it's a great question. And um, all of my students have always asked and I've always told them you own every single thing that happened to you. And I also tell them no one in your family is going to be glad to know you're working on a memoir. <laughs> 
But then it's back to what all three of us were saying. You spew, you know, you spew and you write an incredibly sh shitty first draft just to get the material down. And then you start to decide whether you want to write it as fiction. If you write it as a screenplay, it's, I had a student uh, 40 years ago, uh, no, 30 years ago, a young Asian man and his mother had used to hold his hand over the flame when he had disobeyed her. And she was alive and very frail and, and uh, vulnerable. And so he didn't want everyone to know that his mother used to burn him. I can't tell you how many students I had whose parents used to let, dads used to let them go out to the backyard to pick the switch, which one was, they were going to then be beaten. You don't want to hurt the dad's feeling. He's old. He's getting funny. You know, he's, and so you make it fiction. You make it be the family down the street. You, may, you don't have it be your Japanese family in, uh, in Tiburon. You have it be um, a Catholic, uh, a, a Turkish Catholic family in Milwaukee or in the next town over. And you, you know, you change everything about them. You get it. You own it. It's yours. It's the coin of the realm is your memories, your experiences, what you've made of it, your truth, the shapes of your truth. And you get it all down on paper and then you start to work with it. Should this be fiction? Prob possibly. If you're going to do it as a memoir, you ask someone, you have a writing partner. That's the most valuable thing that comes out of any of the workshops I ever do is that you have a writing partner. You have someone who will absolutely tell you the truthful response to what you're doing as you will for him or her. And they will help you brainstorm. How can I tell this story? My mother was terrifying and she's alive and she's infirm and um then i you know i've never told family secrets and people say oh you're so honest so you just say anything i don't i don't tell family secrets i always remind my relatives at every holiday that i completely have the goods on them but have so far not chosen to write about it but um i don't want to hurt anybody i wrote one piece in traveling mercies where um, I wrote about my mom and, and, and how oh, she was a tiny little, very annoying, very overweight woman from Liverpool. I didn't mention all those phrases. She was so, we've been annoying each other for our whole lives because I wouldn't be the daughter that she really wanted me to be and hoped I would be. And, and so I wrote a piece and there was no um, harshness in it, but it was pretty honest. You know, it said, she um, she's wearing a sweater out to the beach, although it's 85 degrees and it's making me crazy. And she gets out of the car and then we all have to go back to the car because she forgot her sweater, you know, and everybody else is in shorts and tank tops. And um, and my mother lost her mind. She was furious. It caused a huge, horrible upset in our community. The local paper wrote about what a disastrous daughter I was. And then the minister, the priest of a very powerful Episcopal church said, I've known Annie and Nikki Lamott for 20 years now. I've never known a daughter who was more devoted to her mother because I told a story about her and I, um, and I protected her. I didn't say the truth, which was my mother basically destroyed me. And my adulthood has been about restoration and reclaiming the parts of me that my mother tried to browbeat or shame out of me. I didn't tell all those stories. Then I wrote another piece. I forgot what book it was um, called Neurot. Oh, I know what it was. It was sort of the greatest hits book, which is, I won't remember the title, Small Victories. Um, 
and it was and it was about how when my mother died um, I didn't scatter her ashes for two years because I was so mad I was so mad that I had to fake it for I, I guess she was uh, 20 years ago so I was you know almost 50 when she died I've been faking it for 50 years and I thought I'm not gonna do this big dramatic It'd be great for a screenplay where you have all this resolution and you scatter your mother's issues and the healing takes place on film. I just thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to pray. I'm going to feel. I'm going to cry. I'm going to rage. I'm going to get help. And I'm going to see what happens. And that's what Neil, you know, I don't know. I don't know how this turns out. I don't know if I ever get her ashes out of the closet. And then, they, then I did. And that was the story. And so um, I find my way through it with a lot of help, with a lot of help. And, um, and I don't write stories about my family just because I think they're really funny or kicky. Um, I I'm very protective of them. And, um, and, every, and the paradox is that every single thing that has happened to me is why I grew up to be the woman I am. And it's mine. That's what it's so beautiful. And what's also beautiful that I hearing you say is that the person you're being the most honest about, and my experience of reading your work, the person you're being the most honest about is yourself. Yeah. The, the person who is exposed, who is showing herself is you. And yes, those other players might be in, in the work, but they're players in the work to help you show yourself more. And that's, what's so beautiful and inspiring to me as a writer is that you're always coming back and looking at yourself in terms of the your humanness. And so it, it can be a Japanese family in, in, in this place, or it can be a, a, a Turkish family here, because what we're talking about is the human truth of your experience. Right. Um, and I, it's so, it's so inspiring. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons I think Lorraine and I started this podcast is because we want to help people understand that, understand that that is, the core of 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 the of the work, um, Lauren. Did we have another craft question from the group? From we the do. Listeners? I do want to say that through this whole conversation, I felt very much on the edge of tears, <laughs> listening to you talk, and it so speaks to me as a writer and as a human that. And that's the real work, I think. And, you know, at the beginning of the episode, I talked about how this character is so slippery because it's so personal, and sort of telling the truth about myself and. It requires me to know myself, which is something I struggle with. And so I was thinking, well, why don't I just write that? Someone who's struggling to know themselves, you know, because uh -huh. that's the truth of myself yeah. right now. And that's well, why she's so book, slippery. This whole new book, yeah. on the entire book is how do we get to know ourselves? How do we stop being who we always agreed to be because it made everybody like us more. It made our parents feel better respect because everyone felt this or that way about their kids. How, where do we start becoming who we are born to be? And how is that not going to make you the writer that, that, you know, how is this whole book, the intention is for you to wake up to the shape that's waiting for you to step into. I think that's why it makes you feel teary is yeah. because that's really painful stuff that you haven't yet or that, you know, our fearfulness is just so painful. I mean, the fearful little kid inside of us. But I mean, the answer is we start where we are. We start with a one inch picture frame. We um, we do it badly. We get we we break down the perfectionist by perfectionism by do, writing even shittier first drafts. We uh, we ask for even more help. I mean, 
the whole book is about the help that is available when we realize we actually want it now. I want to be able to capture something about the human experience, the, the blueprint of one human life that will be illuminating for whoever comes upon this book. And how some stories that I could tell you that will show you how I got ready to leave who I've always been and step into this shape that's always been waiting for me. Here, And the question you ask as a screenwriter, I ask is, do you have a minute? Do you have a minute? I'm going to tell you the story. Do you, you know, that's what the storytellers did around the campfire when we were cave people. There was a storyteller that turned out to be us. And they said, I'm going to be telling a story tonight by the fire. Pull up a seat. And we're getting people, and, and all the people listening to this are asking people to pull up a seat because we're going to tell the stories. And we only like stories about ourselves, right? Like the, the, the storyteller in the cave is not making up stories. Uh, the storyteller is telling them, is holding up a mirror and saying, this is who we are and this is what is true. And people that we couldn't live without have died. Yet here we are. Where do we start? That's the one great story. Or they've said, you know, they've said, this is who we are. This is what we long to be able to do. We long to fly. We long to soar. And yet we carry around all this stuff that makes everybody happy. That if we keep doing the same, you know, it's like a jukebox that we always bring with us that people can put a quarter in here. And we're saying, no, if we don't bring the jukebox with us, do we have a story that people might be interested in? Well, yeah, I haven't actually gotten it perfect yet, but do you still want to hear it? It's kind of pre-shitty first draft. That's a whole book by itself. And we're saying, and the, the man, the, the chieftain around the fireplace is saying, this is actually the first time I've told you, but we tell the same old, there's only five stories. And so it might be a little long-winded tonight, but do you want to hear it anyway? Who is going to say no? This is a story about who we are, how we survive, how we are redeemed, how we find renewal, restoration, revival, how we find courage. Have a seat or don't. I can't get you to want to hear this story. I understand if you don't have the time, but if you do, sit down and buckle up. That's so amazing. That's all I have to offer you is my truth, is my version of things. But I'm not gonna, you know, I've written a lot of novels. I think I've written seven or eight novels. All those people are aspects of me, you know. They're my child. They're my real. They're my alcoholic wife. They're my neurotic, graspy, clingy writer who's just desperate for fame. Or they're the, you know, the the very chubby best friend who just is so curious and loves life so much and is absolutely forgiving. All those people are me. We really love stories about ourselves. That's why we're here. Find out who we are. Yeah, to know ourselves. Know ourselves. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. I think that is such a spectacular way for us to, to wrap up the interview. It's so um, inspiring. Yes. Thank you. I, I probably will burst into tears once we uh, wrap. I'm just <laughs> letting everyone know. Uh, and I think it will be a good catharsis for me to move into the work I have to do on my script this afternoon. So yes. thank you for that gift. Can I um, hold up the cover of my book because it will help me be less frantic about- It's beautiful. 
What publication? Well, I know. Here's the nails. Too. There, yes. We do need <laughs> the nails. It. Yes, perfect. Nails. And yesterday, I wore a sweater that matched the cover. But, That's great. Um, and I had the nails. I mean, it was talk about tears. You would have been in the fetal position if you'd seen the sweaters, the fingernails, and the book cover. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the message that we, the story that we tell is that we're all in this together. There's really just one of us, and we're as vulnerable as kittens, and it's a, the earth has always been a dangerous place. It was dinosaurs before it was COVID, and we're a violent species, and, you know, and Cain is always killing Abel, and, and has, will today again, and we stick together, and we share what we know, and we share what we make of it all, and maybe in our telling the truth, the best we can, and with this, uh, uh, with an entertaining um, ancestral gift from the storytellers around the campfire, we pass the time in a way that settles us and changes us, right? I mean, I was redeemed like other people are redeemed by Jesus or Moses or Mohammed. I was redeemed by the written word, by the storytellers, kindergarten. The first chapter book you read, you're six years old, and it means you're lost in a world such as you, any of the three of you might create, which I've created over and over again. You're inviting people to get lost in this world because the trick is that in that world, they're going to get found and they're going to be changed and it's going to go on. And it's a song that never ends. Another chapter right after you finish for the day. So thank you. I, I'm really pleased that I got to be on this show and God, I just hope everybody will let themselves write, write really badly and, and, and shoot for things you've never tried before and find one or two friends who are really, really good writers who can help you get better, help you burnish the surface of, the, of your creations. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. We're, Thank I'm you. I'm probably going to listen to this over and over and over again and then oh sob. And then write. You're <laughs> <laughs> just all wonderful. I love you. Okay. Thank you so Bye, much. Thank you, okay. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye. Thank you Bye. all. Bye. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group and email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions and get to know who you are and anything you need. And Annie's new book, Dusk night dawn comes out uh, this tuesday march 2nd and we'll link to the amazon pre-order on our facebook group and uh in the description below and i just want to quickly say too a lot of you guys might know annie's work through bird by bird but um this book dusk night dawn and a lot of her work on sort of life and spirituality essentially is about writing i mean you might not think on the surface it's about writing but because i think in some ways like becoming a writer and writing is the process of finding hope. Um, this book really will serve you as a writer too. So definitely check it out. If you only know Annie for her kind of specifically writerly work, check out this book and any of her other writing because it will, it will inspire and cultivate work for you. So yes, absolutely. How totally. authentic she is, how brave she is. She dives in and uh, she's also an incredible writer. Uh, and it's always good to read amazing writing on the page. So yes. So remember, uh, like Annie said, we're all in this together and you're not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. 
Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life or email us at the screenwriting life at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it. And not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.